When we filed our first sit rep from Kuwait on Thursday, 6 March 2003, neither my field producer nor I had the answer to the number one question from Fox News headquarters in New York City. When will hostilities against Saddam Hussein commence? Two weeks later, we could answer the question because we were embedded with the U.S. Marines who were the first to fight. I'm Oliver North, and in this Fox News War Stories podcast, you can join me and then-cameraman and field producer Griff Jenkins as we cover the opening of Operation Iraqi Freedom, from pre-H-hour action and the first American combat losses, through the liberation of Baghdad to the capture of Saddam Hussein's hometown of Tikrit. Come with us as we keep company with America's newest generation of heroes as they topple Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein and his bloody regime that terrorized the Iraqi people for more than 25 years. The voices and sounds you hear in this podcast are the real thing, captured on our microphones during vicious gunfights while we were embedded with units of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force and later with the Army's 4th Infantry Division. On D-1, we rode into battle with HMM-268, the Red Dragons, commanded by Marine Lieutenant Colonel Jerry Driscoll. His squadron of Marine CH-46 helicopters was the primary casualty evacuation unit for Regimental Combat Team 5, led by then-Colonel Fighting Joe Dunford, destined to become Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. RCT-5 was the lead combat element of the 1st Marine Division, then commanded by Major General Jim Mattis, now the Secretary of Defense. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand from the troops Mattis led and inspired to go further, faster, and with fewer casualties than any armed force in history. And while you listen, judge for yourself whether I was right to describe the young American soldiers, sailors, airmen, guardsmen, and Marines we accompanied in this bloody contest as the brightest, best, and bravest of their generation. Good evening, I'm Oliver North and welcome to this special edition of War Stories. This is part of the Iraqi desert, an ocean of wind-whipped sand and dust, and for the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardsmen of Operation Iraqi Freedom, this trackless desert has become an unforgiving adversary in the fierce fight to liberate a people. From Vietnam as a Marine to this battlefield for Fox News with the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force and the 4th Infantry Division. I've had the opportunity to be with the people who shape our history. As a young lieutenant in Vietnam, I remember good young men dying on the fields of battle, some of them while responding to my orders. Mercifully, Operation Iraqi Freedom has had far fewer casualties than most other hostile engagements. At the end of April, when combat operations ceased and stability and security operations began, Central Command announced that 132 Americans had made the ultimate sacrifice and that 495 had been wounded in action. This is our war diary, a chronicle of some of the extraordinary American soldiers, sailors, airmen, guardsmen, and Marines who have once again fought, bled, and sometimes died for the freedom of others. It was the second time we faced a familiar enemy. Engage, everybody! This time, the regime of Saddam Hussein was swept from Iraq like ants from a picnic table. Yeah. 
but on the eve of battle, the cost of victory was unknown. It was a gritty night in the far peninsula. Saddam had blown up seven oil wells and the acrid smoke mixed with blowing sand. I've been embedded with HMM 268, a medium helicopter squadron known as the Red Dragons. 268, Before sunrise on day one, four of these Marines would be dead. Remember, when it gets exciting, just take that extra deep breath. Right now, we think game time will be 0001. So basically right at midnight. Their mission? Achieve tactical surprise two hours before the first bombs drop in Baghdad. So we will basically be looking to lift back up into coke, kind of get that thing set and going, and then at that point we'll, we'll be planning to depart unless we have other tasks back to the farm to start, uh, start the egress route. More than 50 U.S. choppers are poised for the largest heliborne assault in history, taking the British Royal Marines of 4-2 Commando deep behind enemy lines. Primary lift CH-46C Knights, the venerable 35-year-old workhorse of the Marine Corps. I'm in the lead bird, flown by Squadron Commander Lieutenant Colonel Driscoll. Suddenly, 20 minutes into the operation, caught on my camera, Dash 3, a CH-46 explodes into a fireball. Eight Royal Marine Commandos and four U.S. Marines are killed. Half hour later, weather causes the mission to be aborted. In retrospect, was it wise to plan that mission? Oh, absolutely had to plan that mission because the, the part it played in the overall scooter. While it did not go, uh, we didn't know that at the time. We did have the mishap and we lost some, uh, some good Marines and some good Royal Marines in that. Um, you know, the, the Royal Marines were able to still get it done the next day. I never look back at that and say that that was something we should not have done or should not have tried to do. We absolutely had to. After daybreak, the Red Dragons began their primary mission in Operation Iraqi Freedom, Kazavak, providing air ambulances from the battlefield for wounded Marines. Each CH-46 had up to 12 litters lining the birds and two highly trained Navy medical corpsmen. This is Chief Hospitalman Tom Barry and Corpsman Jason Como. With fierce fighting underway in Nazaria, wounded Marines and injured enemy combatants and civilians were evacuated to an Army shock trauma hospital set up just outside the town. Late in the day, a Marine corporal had taken enemy shrapnel in the stomach, had to be brought aboard the bird and stabilized. But this got in the way of getting him back to further medical treatment. It's called a sharky, a sandstorm from hell. Towering over 10,000 feet, was a swirling orange cloud of blinding grit which came at us at 60 miles an hour. Despite a loaded weight of more than 12 tons, the birds were tossed around like an unbalanced load of laundry. Pilot Aaron Eckerberg was forced to set the chopper down near the front lines to wait the sandstorm out. But it wasn't safe. The enemy was too close, and a bird that couldn't fly had to be moved. Enter marine ingenuity. With perimeter protection provided by M16s and 50 caliber machine guns, a Humvee towed the aircraft two miles to a more secure area. We don't want to kick over too far. 
inside the helo, two Navy corpsmen help a wounded Marine hang tough for more than 30 hours. We put some more bandages, but a lot of drugs. Oh, I don't know about that. I heard some of you guys were doing yeah, a lot of work yeah. inside the helicopter. Um, drugs and IV fluids, but those grunt guys are doing an awesome job. Making our job easier. The storm abates, but the chopper is out of commission. Its engines clogged with sand. A passing Huey responds to a radio call for help, and the wounded Marine is evacuated, eventually all the way to Ramstein, Germany, for surgery. Captain, how glad are you to be alive? <laughs> happy to be here. For the pilot, Captain Eckerberg, it was a mission he'll never forget. Coming up, hunting for the enemy with Light Attack Squadron 267. And two birds go down to Iraqi fire. Stay with us for more war stories from Iraq. That's an order. plus eight in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Baghdad is being bombed around the clock by cruise missiles and strike aircraft from carriers in the Persian Gulf. All right, let's go. Let's get through. On the ground, the Marines have crossed the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and are closing in on Baghdad from the east. Colonel Joe Dunford is the commanding officer of Regimental Combat Team 5, the tip of the spear. How big is Regimental Combat Team 5? At various times, it, it, it ranged between about 6,500 and almost 8,000 uh, throughout the war. It included the Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion, a tank battalion, uh, an artillery battalion, three infantry battalions, and combat service support. It was a great team. We're at Wrigley Field, a Ford arming and refueling point, better known as a FARP. Named after Major League Baseball parks, this is one of more than 20 that were set up in Iraq. FARPs allowed aircraft to refuel and rearm close to the front. Because combat units would move up to 30 or more miles a day, the FARPs had to leapfrog forward just to keep up. One of the challenges is that you were moving so fast. Some say you outran your supplies. Did that happen? Uh, I would say that we didn't outrun the supplies. We certainly stretched them to the absolute limit. Uh, but by, by conserving things like fuel, water, chow, and those things, uh, we were able to keep a pace and keep moving. I don't think we ever stopped because we ran out of supplies. There were days we wished we had more, but we were never below the level that we could cross the line of departure. At, at various points, you, you encountered some very stiff resistance from regular Iraqi army units and, and or Republican guards. And then the Fadiyin. De describe to me what you think of, 
of those as, as an enemy force? Uh, I actually think we face probably four or five different enemy. South, we kind of faced the regular army. They were not very, uh, very tough. They didn't have the will to fight. Uh, there was one significant action down south at Pumping Station 2 where about 100 of them did fight pretty stiffly. Along Highway 1, uh, you know, we had some individuals who uh, hung in for a little bit longer, but the level of training that they had was uh, was not to the level that the uh, United States Marines had. So that's where, that's where the difference. Uh, in many cases, I think they had the will to stay in there and fight, and we saw individual acts of bravery by the enemy, but never once did we see combined arms integrated above the platoon level. And we had some significant contact with some of the irregulars, uh, which in retrospect perhaps were Saddam Fedayeen, but really death squads uh, of Saddam Hussein. Some regular army, perhaps Republican Guard leadership, but by and large, mostly uh, people thrown hastily into, uh, you know, conscripted, conscripted service. As they moved, they had to know where the enemy was. Colonel Bob Rice is the commander of Marine Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Squadron Number 2. These things are harder to fly than any airplane we have in the inventory. And yet they're remarkably successful at gathering intelligence. Yes, they are. We're, we're a very, uh, we're a key asset. How many lift, how many launches have you done out of Wrigley? This is an expeditionary Ford area arming and refueling. We've point. done uh, around uh, 35 flight hours and about uh, 10 or 12 launches out of here in a, just a couple days. And we, this is about as expeditionary as it gets. It's, it's pretty rough, isn't it? It's pretty humble. Last night, your guys spotted some enemy tanks. Tell us about that. Uh, we spot enemy tanks, we spot enemy bad guys about every time we go out. This little vehicle here, the, the heart and soul of this thing is the camera. What's the engine in this thing? The engine is a uh, two-cycle snowmobile engine pushing an uh, expensive payload through the sky, an expensive camera. The $900,000 aircraft was piloted like a remote-controlled airplane with real-time visual intelligence beamed down to the Marine Ground Combat Commanders. They're slow, they're noisy, and vulnerable to ground fire. Once spotted by a UAV, enemy units are vulnerable to attack by armed Hueys and Marine Cobras. Here, HMLA-267 Stingers take off in tandem on a hunter-killer mission. This mission took out some Republican guards and their armor. On the morning of April 6th, I rode the Chasebird on a recon mission just north of Baghdad. Both helicopters uh, took hits. Uh, ours took two in the tail boom, uh, not serious enough to bring us down. But uh, Dash 1 was forced to land because it hit a fuel line. The lead pilot described what happened. We saw a military truck stop, some troops dismount. Uh, we opened fire on them, pulled off. He grasped, called some dictionary in, uh, dropped a bomb uh, right next to their truck. We uh, received fire from underneath us. They were hiding in some bushes or in a house. Uh, we didn't see them right away. They shot underneath us and uh, hit my aircraft in the fuel cells. We started losing fuel pretty quickly. I sit down and now we get to do a maintenance recovery. I'll give you like six more bolts to go. Hey, you want to pull the uh, top plate? There's the, the hole in the post.
three hours later, the Leaf Bird's repaired and able to fly off for further repairs. Coming up, the threat of chemical weapons is real. This equipment can be worn for 45 days without being contaminated and 24 hours in a contaminated environment. So he's basically at the mercy of how long he can go without food. And the troops are prepared with mop suits and a $2 million rolling nuclear biological chemical laboratory. But the Marines also rely on Geraldine. Anybody want to say hello to you at home? That's ahead on War Stories. The threat of Saddam using biological or chemical weapons in the Second Gulf War was very real. His gassing of tens of thousands of his own people in 1991 is one of the most egregious examples of his brutality. This is a chart on um, how to prevent and treat uh, chemical warfare. I found this over in the bunkers um, in the area we're at right here. One of the things that everyone prepared for and, and, and thought was a distinct possibility was the use of chemical and or biological weapons against us. We all, your, your Marines were in full mop uh, for days. Was, was that equipment necessary and is that equipment something you could fight in? Uh, not only could we fight in it, we did fight in it. Uh, we fought in it for a couple of weeks. We could have fought in a couple of weeks more. Our troops were equipped with state-of-the-art mop suits and chemical protective gear. Warren Officer Ferguson, how long can he wear this equipment? Sir, this equipment can be worn for 45 days without being contaminated and 24 hours in a contaminated environment. There's a voice emitter on this so that if he needs to give orders, as a staff sergeant would, he can be heard. Yes, sir. There's one in the front and one in the, on the side that facilitates use of comm equipment, such as a telephone or a handheld radio, sir. Staff Sergeant Elwood, are you uncomfortable? No, sir. In addition to the cost of $2 million each, there was a rolling nuclear, biological, and chemical reconnaissance system. A three-man crew is able to detect and identify chemical and radiological contamination on the battlefield as far as three and a half miles away. But the 5th Marines also put their faith in something else. This is Geraldine the Chicken, who was picked up for a dollar on the streets of Kuwait. When we first got here, the chickens we got weren't healthy at all. They all died, except for the one that, well, the one you see back there managed to survive. From Mobile, Alabama, Lance Corporal Barry Sox. Your new job is to look after these birds. It's everybody in my unit's job. We all, everybody in these two vehicles pretty much take care of her. A few MREs later, Geraldine is a lean, mean, foul Marine. We use the ch chicken to determine uh, if there's a nerve agent in the air. If uh, there's a nerve agent, they're more susceptible than humans, and the chicken will die first, which indicates that we need to go into mop level four, which means we need to get our gas mask on and our NBC gear on. Also joining Geraldine on the battlefield are two pigeons. One's named Salt, and the other one's Pepper. Most of the guys are a fan of the chicken. Yeah, none of us like the pigeons. <laughs> 
By April 10th, the 5th Marines are moving out again with Gerald Dean in tow. One of the things that, that the mission, one of the missions was to make sure that Saddam Hussein couldn't use his weapons of mass destruction. None have yet been found, verified. There's a lot of suspicion about some. Are you surprised? I'm not surprised that, uh, that we haven't found him. Uh, when you look at how militarized the society was and how many places he had hidden weapons and so forth, I think it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if years from now we find some of these things that have been hidden. Uh, as you've seen, virtually every public building, every block, every grove of palm trees uh, was filled with boxes and boxes of ammunition, uh, weapons, equipment. Though the 5th Marines didn't find any weapons of mass destruction, they did learn who's been selling all kinds of other weaponry to Saddam. On some uh, anti-personnel fuse igniters. Uh, we've got the anti-personnel mines in the uh, quadcon there, along with several other small devices. And this is, that's a fuse for a uh, mine? Yes, sir. Made in France. Anti-personnel made in France, sir. Up next, the 5th Marines take over one of Saddam's presidential palaces. And the Red Dragons evacuate more than 70 wounded Marines under fire. Those guys are absolutely uh, the most courageous that I've ever seen. Uh, the, the CH-46 guys from the 3rd Marine Air Wing are absolute heroes. The bloody fight for a presidential palace just ahead. Baghdad. Don't believe them. They are nowhere. This is silly. <laughs> By D plus 13, the coalition forces had a surprise for Baghdad Bob. The Iraqi army was on the run. The U.S. Army's 3rd Infantry Division was attacking the city from the south. Their target, the Saddam International Airport. At the same time, the 5th Marines were fighting their way in from the east along the Tigris River, and the poverty we saw was appalling. Red 2, Red 1. Send it. Roger, you're moving. Look at this. See these things on the left? These are people's houses. I know. Look at this. I know we've seen bad things, but this is just about the worst I've seen. Look at this. This is the city garbage dump. Look at this. I wonder what that smell was. It's the dump. I wonder where all the peace protesters are that uh, never protest this kind of stuff. These poor people, my God. It's inexcusable. We're rolling up to a site that we've encountered over and over. Saddam converted schools, public buildings, even mosques into weapons depots and arsenals. We rolled up on the building last night, got put our 60 millimeter mortar. A couple AK-47s, there was a couple more that got set out there. Command's taking a look at. There's four left here. Bipod four in the back, box full of magazines. Okay, what will you do with these weapons? Well, they're going to be held by the uh, security element, I understand. People that are holding prisoners are going to hold on to them. And most of them will be destroyed. 
These Iraqi prisoners of war were captured by the 5th Marines. Within days, most of them would be returned to their families. On April 10th, HMM-268 had the casualty evacuation mission at the hottest LZ I've ever been in, Saddam's presidential palace in Baghdad. That's Captain Sean Bosco, an F-18 pilot. He's the forward air controller for 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, and his job today, guiding helicopters into this hot landing zone. The CH-46 guys from the 3rd Marine Air Wing are absolute heroes. Uh, they would come in under heavy enemy fire while the enemy was not only trying to hit him with machine gun, but as well as knock him out of the sky as they were taking off again. It's a bloody day and night. 73 wounded Marines would be evacuated. We were en route to take uh, Saddam's palace in downtown Baghdad, just east of the Tigris River. As we proceeded down out of the northern part of Baghdad into the central part, we were uh, under significant enemy fire from both uh, the Fedayeens and the uh, Special Republican Guards. By about 4 o'clock in the morning, we arrived uh, at the actual palace, uh, knocked down the palace uh, walls, and uh, came down there to uh, seize both not only Saddam's house, but Uday and Kusay's house, which were north and south within the palace uh, confines. morning we came out of Baghdad after uh, one of our toughest fights with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines at Saddam's uh, palace. And uh, it was a blaze of gunfire, smoke, and uh, on the way in. So we had about 100 to 150 uh, pretty determined foe uh, in and around that area. That was certainly some of the toughest fighting. As we land at Saddam's backyard at the palace, Captain Sean Bosco races aboard the CH-46 and hands me a note requesting an emergency resupply of ammunition. I ran on board the helicopter to tell the air crew, the pilots that were flying the birds, that uh, on the next run, I want them to bring me back a lot of ammo, uh, as much as they could carry. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that there was a distinguished-looking gentleman that uh, I recognized from somewhere in the past, uh, <laughs> somewhere. And he's, I looked to him, and I asked him if he was Oliver North, and he uh, gave me the thumbs up. So what I did is I reached into my pocket and uh, took out a camera, wrapped my arms around Oliver North, and uh, snapped a real quick photo. And then he gave me a high five, and I raced back out of the helicopter to get back in the battle. The note you put in my hand, and here's what it says. Colonel Dunford, Grizzly, sir, we need ammo of all sorts. Bring all you can. Hurry, Captain Basco. Six hours into the firefight, Captain Bosco himself was wounded and had to be evacuated. It was uh, my 33rd birthday. Not such a good start to your 33rd birthday, actually. Yeah. I was hitting the right uh, shin. A piece of fragmentation from a rocket-propelled grenade got caught between the bone and the muscle. And uh, ironically, I, I have to take my hat off to the corpsman. Uh, these guys are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he was able to get the fragmentation out of my leg uh, right there on the scene patched me up and uh, allowed me to stay in the fight for uh, several more hours before I had to get medevaced out. I've been told that based on what he did that day, Captain Sean Bosco has been recommended for a heroic decoration reflecting his courage at the presidential palace landing zone. Helicopters like this Cobra, crucial for mobility in the desert, sometimes didn't make it. Our cameras were there. That's next on War Stories.
No military force in history has ever gone so far, so fast, with so few casualties. Lieutenant Colonel Sam Mundy is the commanding officer of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. I don't think the Iraqi army was a formidable foe. I would, uh, I think they could have been had they been better led. Um, I think the weight of our assault, uh, the combined arms effect of uh, air, uh, ground, ground supporting arms, uh, just possibly forced them to, to break earlier than, uh, than they expected, certainly. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, yes, sir. That doesn't take away the need for Kazovac or uh, the RCT because uh, things can still happen. Patriot has confirmed you will have artillery support if you need it. Roger. This assault amphibious vehicle had logged more than 700 miles from the Iraqi border by the time we entered the outskirts of Baghdad. Hey, watch these guys coming through here. This is probably one of the toughest neighborhoods in this whole country. Look at all the young men. Soldiers. 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 Look at them all. All those close haircuts. And they're all glad that they're you, uh, in, the, in the dress the way they bet. are. There's a young man who was in the Army yesterday right there. Another couple right here. I just hope we can, they can make the peace work here, because it, it would be a good example for this whole region if they do. Won't happen overnight, but it will get better. But among the smiling faces, there are still those who want to kill Americans. Don't get any closer. As the area was secured, casualties were radioed in. We've been flying basically with the same corpsman for the last three weeks and we've become very familiar with them, they've become very familiar with us. These guys, in, in, in their flying birds that are older than certainly any of the, the, the lieutenants and captains. I, I think I'm probably the only one older than the aircraft that we fly. Everybody did, else is probably a lot younger. Did that ever become an issue for anybody? Only when they wanted to make it more. If you were wounded in this war, you stood a 99% chance of survival. And that's because of the remarkable medevac and Kazavac system that was set up. When a wounded Marine or soldier was picked up on the battlefield, he was treated aboard the helicopter en route to an Army shock trauma center. Moved forward right behind where the battle was taking place, Army doctors and medics took them from the helicopters directly into surgery. And then, after doing immediate work to save lives, sent them out the back door, put them on an OH-60 U.S. Army helicopter, and flew them at high speed back to Kuwait. Just yards from a secured area, the Marines still took casualties, requiring Navy corpsmen and Marines to evacuate and treat their wounded, and sometimes even the enemy. Most Iraqi soldiers were very young, but some were not. The chief of staff of the Special Republican Guard and his driver were killed when they refused to stop at a Marine checkpoint. My name is Staff Sergeant Duarte Thurston Affairs. What appears here is a, the general from the Al Division. Found him on the side of the road as the Marines pulled through 10 miles away from Baghdad. From the news that I get from the people around here, up front from the villages, they say that they occupied this place for, for a while. We went to investigate the general's quarters. The Marines found little besides some propane tanks, but villagers said there were a lot of weapons in the area. What did you think when you saw all of those hasty revetments that had been dug for all those armored vehicles, and yet relatively few of those revetments 
did more than a, an at least initial engagement and then moved on. Yeah, one, I've never seen a place more militarized than, than Iraq, and it, it uh, just shows the incredible waste that Saddam Hussein laid to, uh, to his country. But uh, there was no rhyme or reason to the location of those revetments. They were not in positions where you would expect to see an organized, liberal defense. Uh, they were really, I think, protection against the expected aviation campaign as opposed to laid out to stop a ground campaign. The Explosive Ordnance Disposal Units had a dangerous mission. This is an H-1 Cobra flying in all its glory. And this is a Cobra that was literally blown out of the sky on April 14th by secondary explosions at an Iraqi munitions depot. You should have seen the Cobra yesterday. My God. In fact, we got the footage. Was it shot down? No. No, he ran such an explosion. Yeah, he did. I think he got some secondaries. We went out there and looked at it. And how two guys walked away from that crash. That's what the guys on the other birds are saying. Well, first thing I said was the big man had a plan for those two guys. There is no other way to explain them walking out of him. It was upside down, totally crushed. In fact, it looked like it happened 10 years ago. If these pilots didn't believe in miracles before this crash, they surely had to afterwards. Coming up, we join the Army's 4th Infantry Division as they take control of Saddam's palace in his hometown of Tikrit. This is nice. Nothing but the best for our boy Saddam. are actually riding hobby horse on the head of Saddam Hussein. On April 9th, the Iraqi people, with the help of the U.S. Marines, finally toppled Saddam Hussein. Kind of makes you wonder why the French and all those uh, countries couldn't see that this is going to be a better place for this uh, regime being gone. Last night, the stand-down order came through for ICT-5 to uh, cease combat operations to start Phase four reconstitution operations includes helping to establish law and order, helping to uh, provide humanitarian support and force protection. We got indications that the phases were going to uh, change, which meant that we were going to go from one type of operation to another. On April 19th, with Baghdad and Saddam's hometown of Tikrit in friendly hands, our Fox team was reassigned and we joined the Army. And it's no easy mission assigned to the 4th Infantry Division. I think these people are probably happier than they've ever been in their freaking life, more than likely. A key ground combat element of the 4th Infantry Division is the famed 66th Armored Regiment. It landed in North Africa in 1942. It fought across the beaches of Utah at Normandy. And these young men behind me inherit the legacy of this great unit. The division originally planned to enter Iraq from the north, but when Turkey refused access to U.S. troops, the 4th ID was left in the Mediterranean, unable to be actively engaged in the first days of the war. Undeterred, its 30,000 troops and 14,000 pieces of equipment sailed through the Suez Canal to Kuwait and then into Iraq. 
hard target in northern Iraq, Tikrit, Samarra, Saddam's ancestral homeland. It was considered the last place in Iraq where Hussein loyalists might hold out. American soldiers are always ready. Lieutenant Colonel Larry Jackson is commander of 3rd Battalion, 66th Armor, 4th ID. Let's go. It's one of the most technologically advanced divisions in the whole army. You're also the most digitized, in fact, known as the digital division. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, we do have some neat stuff. Uh, and I think that the younger soldiers really get a kick out of it. I came from an analog army, uh, much, uh, much like a, a service that you came from with the old maps and compasses. And uh, for me, it's a great tool. Uh, I would not want to go to war without the FBCB2 and all the digitized equipment that we have. But it's not all computers and high tech. After more than 80 hours of driving in a convoy, we arrived in Tikrit and drove right into Saddam's palace. Yeah, this is one of his palaces. The opulent residence had been abandoned like all his other palaces. The room's empty after a hasty retreat. Who's in there? Saddam's palaces were universally ostentatious and tacky. There was marble and what appeared to be second-hand store furniture. He had a brand-new television and a 15-year-old microwave. He had Limoges china and marble and gold and a knockoff Persian rug from Romania. <laughs> the remarkable thing about Saddam's palaces is that they overlook some of the most beautiful terrain in all of Iraq. But just outside of all of them, you'd find homes without electricity, running water, or even sewage. He had to have been oblivious to the suffering of his people as he turned the profits of oil into his own personal fortune. The Army turned it into the headquarters for the 1st Brigade of the 4th Infantry Division. <laughs> this is nice. Nothing but the best for our boy Saddam. That's the unit responsible for security and sustainment operations. But foreign Fedayeen and other Saddam loyalists were still in the area. Colonel Don Campbell is commander of the 1st Brigade of the 4th ID. The security of Tikrit in this part of Iraq, uh, the home of Saddam Hussein, makes it especially tough. But our soldiers are up to it. Uh, they're conducting aggressive patrolling. I think it's a little bit tougher because now you don't know who the enemy is. Uh, he is dressed like uh, the normal civilian uh, person in city. So you really have to uh, keep your guard up and you have to be vigilant in terms of how you execute your missions. You have to be smart about how you do it. And folks just have to keep their game game face on and keep their, uh, keep their eyes and ears open. Two nights ago, we uh, conducted a patrol and we came upon uh, Iraqis loading trucks with ammunition. They fired upon us. We returned fire, ended up killing approximately 14 Iraqis and uh, completing the, the destruction of those trucks. By no stretch of the imagination is this war over. All over the country, we found huge stockpiles of weapons and ammunition and warehouses filled with ordnance. This is the ammo depot north of Tikrit, and it is about 27 kilometers square. It is full of ammunition from almost every country on Earth. Some of the stuff is in fairly good shape, and about 50% of the stuff is, in, uh, is not in good shape. It's kind of uh, uh, been here for a while, based off the... Uh, the condition of the boxes and uh, the conditions of the rounds. For instance, like that, uh, that round there is fairly new. Garris, it's put in about 400 small arms caches. And we've got about 200 uh, bunkers 
and approximately 100 uh, hard stand building structures, all containing uh, various types of munitions, primarily uh, artillery and large caliber munitions. How about the uh, surface-to-air missiles? There are some, uh, some SA-7s and SA-9s identified in some of the metal buildings. Uh, we've identified those and secured those with uh, U.S. forces on the ground. Can you tell us what you got there on the list, sir? Uh, we've identified uh, munitions from various countries, uh, Jordan, Spain, Saudi, Yemen, all different types. Keeping these weapons out of the hands of the Fedayeen and terrorists became the number one priority. But the toughest job of all was still ahead. We're working civil affairs to uh, win the hearts and the minds of the, uh, the Iraqi uh, civilians. American soldiers are here to liberate, and it doesn't matter how long it takes. With the 66th Armored Regiment and their Abrams tank in Operation Iraqi Freedom, more war stories are just ahead. Malden, the late great Pulitzer Prize-winning World War II cartoonist, once wrote that peace is when no one is shooting. And so it is here with Operation Iraqi Freedom. Iraq is not yet at peace. American troops are still being shot at from the shadows by remnants of an evil regime. Others, Islamic extremists, have entered Iraq vowing vengeance. Vigilance remains the watchword. But for the 229,000 Americans from all 50 states, and the 49 members of our Coalition of the Willing. A salute for their service and their sacrifice. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. For Fox News, I'm Oliver North. Good night. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.